right, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Joining me tonight is Ryan Anderson. You know, Ryan is the creator and host of the long-running Model Railcast show. How you doing tonight, Ryan? Good, and it's uh, it's been a while, Paul. We haven't, our, you know, time just hasn't worked out for us to actually hook up and, and do this, but it's great to see that you have continued to carry the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast torch without me. So, uh, oh, very that's good. okay. My pleasure. So, tonight we've got as our guest Jack Burgess. He's the author of uh, Trains to Yosemite, and he has multiple CD sets covering about everything you could possibly want to know about modeling the Yosemite Valley Railroad. And his website is www. YosemiteValleyRR.com, and that's YosemiteValleyRR, one word, dot com. So before we get started, there was uh, an incident, and you've just got to give, you know, credit where credit was due, and this happened to involve me and Walters. I had uh, purchased some Walters passenger cars at uh, an affair with trains here in Phoenix, which is my local hobby shop. Brought the cars home, just stripped them down. They were undecorated, so I knew there would be no windows or anything attached. Uh, proceeded for the next two days to detail, mask, and custom paint these to a fantasy scheme I have going for CSX and get it all done. Pop open the clamshell and go, holy crap, there's no windows in here. There's no diaphragms. There's no grab irons. And, you know, I could... Do a work around uh, the diaphragms and grab irons, but you've got to have the windows, and Walters is the only uh, source for it. So I sent off an email and said, hey, this isn't your problem. You didn't cause it. You know, your uh, supplier on the other end kind of dropped the ball, but I need some help here. And I uh, just wanted to thank them after a couple emails, and then they called me. And they went through their parts bin of, uh, I guess they get return kits and so forth, and got a call back. The guy not only found the window sets I needed, but for the third car, he didn't have window sets, but he had a body. So he sent me the whole body, which I was uh, working on today, getting it painted and so forth. So I you know, just said, you know, this kind of above and beyond customer service just has to be acknowledged out there. And so there's a shout out to Walter's customer service for, you know, taking care of the customer. So, you know, it was just a, it was a win all the way around. Well, I'll tell you, those are the guy kind of manufacturers and suppliers I go with. I mean, you know, you, you mess up, you know, one time with a customer and you pretty much lost them. So uh, it's good that they carried the ball even for one of their vendors. That's great. Yep. So, Ryan, why don't you kick us off here tonight? Well, holy cow, I was telling Jack in the pre-show, it's been almost a year. And uh, for those who do listen to the Model Railcast show, if uh, you want a detailed, in-depth interview with Jack and his Yosemite Valley Railroad, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But for reference, you can uh, find out more at the Model Railcast dot uh, com, and that was show one hundred and two where we talked with Jack pretty in depth. But uh, Jack Burgess, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Jack is uh, 
if you don't know him, he does the Yosemite Valley Railroad, and he models it uh, at a very specific point in time, and there's reasons why he does it. But he has worked on this railroad for years and uh, has created quite a masterpiece. Um, Jack, what – why don't we start with uh, very – We obviously, you got into model railroading, but – why Yosemite Valley? What? What's? Where's the interest spark? And in, in, I mean, you spent a ton of time researching this. Why Yosemite Valley? Well, let me give you a real short background. I I, I got into model railroading as a kid when I was in junior high. Uh, couldn't afford it, and uh, but I was still building models and so forth. So in, in 1965, I decided I wanted to get back into the hobby. Um, that didn't have much discretionary income, like zero, which meant basically scratch building things, which was fine, and hand laying track and so forth. Um, I started out freelancing, really freelancing, uh, taking it the whole whole way. I had flat cars that were reefer yellow and refrigerator cars that were caboose red. You know, anything goes, and uh, and that was okay. But um, I met a guy that was doing some prototype uh, freight car scratch building. Uh, there were still, still a lot of old freight cars out there. He would go down to the railroad yards, find them, photograph them, take some measurements, and build some very, very nice models, very nice for the time, of um, these prototype freight cars. Uh, there was a lot of stuff we didn't know. Uh, so they were lettered um, as we saw them which was not how they were in the period that we were thinking we were modeling them. Uh, but that whole um, exercise made me realize that I liked the challenge of prototype modeling. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot at the time. Remember, this was back in 65. This is back when people were still doing a lot of freelancing, making up their own names for railroads, or maybe um, modeling a prototype but with no particular location, so forth. And um, so I decided I wanted to model a prototype. I felt that it had to be in California. One of my criteria, which might seem strange to many people, is I did not want to model or select a prototype for which there were a lot of brass engines available. Um, this was the time period when brass imports would be coming in, hobby shops would buy 10 or 15 sight unseen and know they can sell them as opposed to taking reservations before they're ever built and so forth. And if I had picked something like the Southern Pacific, you know, every month there would be a new Southern Pacific brass engine available and it would be very depressing to see one that you wanted knowing that you couldn't buy it. So I decided I wanted to pick a prototype for which I didn't think anybody would ever build or import a brass engine, since I couldn't afford them. Um, I also, since I knew that I needed a scratch build everything in order to keep my cost down, I wanted a prototype that there were a lot of photos available, which meant that there had to be a good book on the railroad, thinking that most, if not all, the photos that were available for a particular railroad were in a book somewhere. And so I looked at several possible prototypes, um, Went to the library, looked at books they had. You know, I couldn't afford my own book. And ultimately, and I don't know if it really took me that long, but I finally decided to model Yosemite Valley Railroad. 
Hank Johnston had come out with a book on the railroad in the early 60s, had a lot of pictures, seemed like an interesting railroad. Um, and so that's how I got started. Um, I found that uh, I, actually a friend of mine gave me a couple photos that were not in the book, which really piqued my interest. And so I started looking at captions uh, in the book, whose photos they were, finding out how to get hold of these guys. And a lot of these guys were still alive. So uh, I would write to them cold and say, uh, I'm interested in modeling this railroad and I need more photos. Is it possible you might have some and so forth? And um, met a lot of these guys, Ted Worm, Fred Stowes, these guys that were taking a lot of pictures back in the late or their late 30s, early 40s. And um, a lot of them let me borrow their negatives. I had access to a dark room, and so I'd borrow their negatives and print up photos and print up a set for them if they wanted. And um, slowly my collection of YV photos just grew and grew and grew uh, to the point where now I've got about 2,700 photos of this railroad. Holy uh, cow. <laughs> and as I got into it, um, I, I like challenges. And so I did something that very few people were doing at the time. And and in hindsight, it, and what I did sounds kind of hokey now, but recognize that uh, in the early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, was when businesses were coming out with um, mission statements. And you would, you know, all the employees would sit down and, and distill all their values into a short statement that said what their company should do. And, and one of them, Google still has it. Their, their mission statement, statement is as long as, as far as I know, is do no evil, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So I, uh, I wrote my own little mission statement and it was basically to model the Yosemite Valley Railroad as it existed in August, 1939, using contest level modeling, uh, state of the architect and as accurately as possible. And I have stuck to that for 40 some years. Uh, my layout is, um, I started in 81, so it is 30 years old this year. Uh, and it is just about done. But, <laughs> Finally, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that meant, you know, every single structure had to be scratch built. That was one of my, my rules. Um, Every freight car has to have a um, <clears throat> complete underbody and represent a real prototype. Um, and as I've gotten into it more and more, I have gotten rid of cars that, you know, I liked them. They were nice color. I did a good job on them. But I, in hindsight, I would look at them and say, you know, that car probably never showed up on the YV. And so I've gotten rid of those. Um, and what that mission statement has done, a lot of people would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, this is a hobby that's supposed to be fun. You know, you're, you're looking, you're approaching it like it's a business. But what it has done is it has driven me to uh, finish things and maintain my standards. And that's extremely rewarding personally. You know, it's easy. Sometimes you say, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to do an okay job. I, I really don't care. Um but I do care. You know, for me personally, I care. You know, no one sees underbody on freight cars, but I know it's there. So um, in the long run, I have gotten an enormous enjoyment out of this hobby by setting 
some standards for myself and expectations and modeling a prototype that started out no one in the world was modeling except for me. Um, and so it, it is just, uh, like I say, it's been a, just a fantastic journey. Well, I think you bring up something that's important. I mean, I started the podcast a little over three years ago, and you know the the response and and the input I get from people just getting into the hobby is where do I start? What do I do? And and I I think you taking the time, even though it was kind of the fad of the of the era, to write a mission statement is to get it down on paper and and put a, a a plan together, even if it's just two or three sentences of what you want to do because it gets you focused. And and I believe that with any project you start, whether it's at work or at home or your model railroad. So uh, apparently your mission statement, your your plan on what you wanted to do uh, has uh, kept you true. Yeah, you know, and that's, a, a, you know, the, one of the other things, I guess a couple of things. One is uh, when I started modeling this railroad, there wasn't, like I mentioned, there wasn't a lot of prototype modeling. Um, and a lot of it, what there was is people, you know, having a prototype that uh, maybe went through towns, the right name, but the stations are, are kit bashed or whatever. Uh, but the other thing I did was I, I selected a time period. And I don't know why I initially thought of it. Um, very few people, if anybody that I ever read about were, was doing it. But I felt that, like you, you mentioned the word focus, you, I need to focus on a particular period. And um, if you don't pick a year, it's very easy to kind of stray. Um, I know there's a lot of guys who'll say, yeah, you know, I love these diesels and I like those diesels. And they weren't on the, the railroad at the same time, but it's my railroad, so I'm going to put them on the railroad at the same time. Uh, and that's fine. I don't I don't care. And, you know, if somebody freelances, I don't care. Um, but I did. I can't do that. Uh, I've got a brass car. It was an import that Beaver Creek did. And I painted it all up, lettered it. It's a, a, a combine that the railroad owned, but it was burned in a 1937 fire. And so it, it does not go on the layout. Never has been on the layout. Um, it's just in a display case. Um, and so it just, uh, by picking a year, it keeps me from buying stuff I really shouldn't have. Um, you know, resin kits will come out and you say, wow, that is so cool. I love, I love, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the reefers with all the, what they call those, uh, the billboard reefers, you know, those are so cool. Well, they were gone. Um, and so, I mean, they'd be cool. And if I wanted to build one someday, I could build it, but it would go in the display case. Um, and people will say, well, I'm modeling the 50s. Well, you know, you got a 1959 Chevy on your layout. Uh, so you're not modeling 51, 52. You're not modeling 58. You're modeling 59. So um, people can do what they want. But I just, I like the discipline of having a, a year and a month. Um, a lot of people don't, but I'm finding more and more people are picking at least, you know, a, a spring, well, you know, you You've got to pick a time of year if you're going to model the foliage uh, or is the grass green or is the grass yellow. So some of that you do without realizing it. But um, there's more and more movement toward prototype modeling and more and more people are 
picking a time period, you know, down to a year or maybe two years at the most. Um, and I think most of them find it pretty rewarding. And that's why they're doing it. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Just for the for the reward, or do you think they're doing it to help them stay focused, like you did? Well, yeah. I mean, it it goes both ways. Um, okay. People that have picked a year at least recognize it saves them a lot of money because they don't buy stuff that they shouldn't have. Uh, right. You know, I mean, it's easy to buy stuff and you say, "Oh, that's so cool." Well, you know, now you've got cars that were sold in 1922 and cars that were built in 1946 and and things look kind of strange well there was a question uh i re-listened to that podcast the model railcast podcast 102 just to kind of refresh my memory of some of the things i had asked you and one of the things i didn't ask you because this intro you gave us you kind of gave us in the model railcast and that is you, you created a mission statement to stay focused on a particular month and year and part of the reason as you said you did that was because of the way you wanted to approach building your railroad pretty much everything from scratch you didn't really want anything that was pre-manufactured but you've been doing this for working on this railroad for 30 40 years over that time, have you seen any manufacturers actually create anything for the Yosemite Valley, or are you still the only one doing it? <laughs> oh, no. Um, and that's what been, it was surprising, was a very, well, not real early, but fortunately it was when I got to the point where I could afford them. Uh, Beaver Creek came out with some brass engines for the YV in um, the early 80s. Um, he first came out with a YV caboose. And um, I, he got in touch with me. I'd asked uh, Railroad Model Craftsman, if, I saw an ad for it, and asked him if they wanted a review on it. So they put me in touch with the guy. And uh, and he did a really nice job on the caboose. He had worked for um, Dick Truesdale at Westside, is where he'd gotten his experience on imports. And he, he had a, a very good value, as far as I was concerned, in, in that he want, if he, anything he did, he wanted to do it right. Um, and he liked short lines. He liked the Sierra, the Yosemite Valley Railroad. He did some SP stuff. But I told him once I saw his model and, and got to know him a little bit, I said, you know, if you ever decide to do a YB engine, I'll help you if you're going to do it right. I've got an erection drawing for one of the engines. And he eventually decided to do them. And over a period of Two or three years, he came in with all five of the two six O's that the YV needed, which gave me all of the two six O's I I needed on the layout. Uh, they only had seven engines in 1939, and I've added the other uh, two engines uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, so originally, I mean that that was all we had originally. We also had an RPO car that uh, several importers had brought in, but um, then Rio Grande models eric bracker uh was over one time and he saw my log uh, flats and decided to come out with a kit for those so those are available and then he was looking around for something else to do and he i gave him some plans and photos and he came out with a yb stock car um another guy came out with the um santa fe tower where the santa fe and the yb crossed um so there's stuff out there uh, and, you know, now we're to the point where it's easy to say, all right, 
let's all get together. Well, and I should also mention the West Westerfield came up with all the uh, little hopper cars we needed. So uh, <laughs> you, you know, created your cars, own market. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I helped him on that product or project and um, the YEV had 51 of those cars. So I bought $450 worth of cars from him, kits. Uh, I bought 51 kits, resin kits for those cars. Haven't got them all done yet. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> they are a bitch to build. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we have kits for the cars that the YV had the most of. Uh, you know, and now it's to the point where it's getting easier and easier. If you can put, you know, put the effort into it, uh, you could build a master and find someone to make your own resin kits. Uh, with laser cutting, I don't, I don't like wood kits, and I don't, I've never bought a structure kit in my life. Um, but you could easily draw up plans for one of the stations and have it cut as a laser kit. Um, you know, and and Grant Line, I was talking to one of the Grant brothers. Um, oh God, this was about 15 years ago now, and he mentioned that windows were one of their biggest sellers. And so I said, well, what would you come out with windows for all the YV stations? They only had three windows that, or you only need three windows to do nearly every single station they had. And he said, you know, send me the plans. And so uh, I did. And he came out with injection castings for all three windows that we need for all of the stations. So, um, you know, it's just, it's getting easier and easier. That's for sure. Okay. So you said you never bought it to I've, I'm not sure I've ever heard a railroader say that. You never bought a structure kit. No. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you say you have created structures on your layout with the help of a laser cutter or not? Well, actually, I didn't say that, but I actually have to a degree. There's there's about 110 structures on the layout, and I'm done. Uh, There are no more structures to build. Um, there's no space for any more. Um, a couple of them I built twice, you know, as I got better. But we have a chat list on Yahoo for YV modelers, and people are interested in the model, and people that just like to get emails. And uh, there's been discussions on there about coming out with a, a kit for one of the structures. And, and I wasn't that interested in it because I didn't want to have a structure kit on my layout. And... Um, and actually, northwestern, northeastern scale models, like whatever, the guys that do the wood, they actually came out with a kit for one of the structures that I had drawn up. Yeah, um, northeastern scale lumber. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so ultimately, I found out that there was a, a company that would laser cut styrene. And I needed uh, a fairly nice size uh, station for Merced Falls, which is a two-story station. So I took my CAD drawings and uh, worked with this uh, company and produced a kit. Uh, he laser cut all the sides, all the roof. Um, we had all the Grant Line windows, and so there. And I had ne- since I had never bought a laser cut kit or any cut, any structure at all. I didn't know about all this tab and the slots. And so uh, he had sent me a little bitty structure that he showed, you know, his abilities to laser cut styrene. And had all these little tabs. I thought, wow, that's kind of a cool idea. So I incorporated that into my plans, and he laser cut a dozen kits for us. And so um, we had, you know, there's 11 more guys out there that have kits for this particular station. 
Um, it was not that expensive. You know, if you, you could, if you have enough people, you can amortize the cost of the laser cutting over, you know, a dozen or more people. And it gets down to, it's fairly cheap. You know, most of the cost was actually in the styrene. Um, so that's the, the only quote kit uh, that I've got on the layout. Okay. Well, for, uh, I think Paul's got a couple of questions, but my last question would be, you, you, you put your focus and your mission statement together back in the late 60s. Here you are 30, 40 years later, and I met you uh, about a year and a half ago up at uh, the Chicago or um, – what's that? What was that show you did up there? What's that show? I keep forgetting the name of it. Oh, Naperville? Naperville. Oh. Naperville. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you look good. You're in great shape. Have you not planned? I mean, you're going to come to an end. So what happens? I die. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now people, Whoa. Uh, people say, okay, well, you know, the layout's done, and it, it will be completely done by the Sacramento Convention. Um, I'm a list mate. And, and so as I go along and I see, like a – Oh, maybe six months ago, I was studying some photo. I said, look, there's a little bitty sign on that building I'd never noticed. So I put that on my list to, to add. So what I've got now is finishing some ballasting at various places and, uh, you know, repainting a roof on one building, you know, blah, blah, blah. So nothing big at all. So people say, okay, when it's all done, you're going to start over? No. Um, I've got a lot of kits. I've probably got 40 or 50 resin kits I'd like to build. Uh, because I get bored seeing the same cars all the time. Um, also, car rolling stock. Yeah, you know. So, okay. Yeah, and uh, I need some more cabooses. So, what I also have long had on my list, or you know, my bucket list, if you want to call it, is to build every engine the YB had, including the ones that were gone by 1939. Uh, to build every caboose they ever had, to build every passenger car they ever had. Every box car, every flat car. Um, so I have a lot of cars I want to build. Um, some of them will just go straight on the display case. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to that because sometimes you, you, you know, you're going to have an open house and you think, you know, I really should get this scene finished, which means I need to build two more buildings to have this scene finished. So I'm doing something that I'm doing because an open house is coming up. Uh, so it'll be nice to say, last done. Anybody can right. come, you know, and uh, I'm going to sit in the shop and build ballast cars or whatever. Um, so well, I I'm think actually, it's, a, you know, I'm looking sorry. forward to that. That's okay. Um, I think it's important that just because the layout's done doesn't mean you're done. No. I mean, that's what you're saying. I mean, there's yeah. a lot more you can do. There's, you know, more tweaking, not changing, but tweaking, uh, really polishing the edges so to speak on the layout and uh working on other kits that you find enjoyable even if they don't go on your layout yeah well you, you know a lot of people say okay i'm i'm done with this the basics now i'm gonna go back in detail and i don't do that i when something is done it's done period no more no more figures no more details in fact um recently i was i guess about a week ago i was cleaning out stuff in my shop and i was finding boxes of little detailed parts you know, a little, I don't know, Coca-Cola dispensers and so forth. And, and I'm throwing them all away. 
you know, I don't have any need for them. They're not worth selling. Uh, I mean, the details are done. Um, I know what I need and it wasn't what was in those boxes. So all that stuff got thrown away. It's very refreshing. <laughs> That's just truly amazing. I don't know whether I'm uh, just really motivated or going to become suicidal <laughs> with you, you almost being complete. But I do agree with your your time frame approach. Mine's a little broader. It started at 1900, but I stopped it a week ago Tuesday. <laughs> so that means none of the passengers in my dome cars have iPad 2s. They're all relegated to iPad 1. So you're right. Uh, you got to maintain uh, true to your spirit there. Okay. So you, golly, that's amazing. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked to a model railroader with such a operational philosophy that, well, I build it, I build it complete, and then I don't have to worry about it. That's that's amazing. Uh, you started with a lot of scratch building, and then the industry and the suppliers, I mean, a, a broad paraphrase is they caught up with you. Yeah. So, and I've, I've been to the website, uh, the scenery, the track work, the equipment, I mean, is just incredible. Now, you do operate, right? I don't personally. Uh, okay, but you have an operating crew that gets together for op sessions? Not really. What happens? <laughs> okay. Um, the layout was designed to be operated. I mean, it's, and it's, so it's got sightings and we're running DCC and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I don't have that much of an interest in operations. Um, but I thought maybe I would someday, so I thought I better design it so it could be operated. And it is a fun layout to operate on. There's a lot of demand. But we don't, or I should say, I don't have a crew. Um, it, the operating um, plan or schematic is set up to accommodate people that have never operated and, and never even seen this layout. Um, it's not very complex. The layout itself is straightforward. Tracks don't disappear. Appear and reappear where you don't think they're going to and so forth. But, you know, there's, oh, probably half a dozen guys that have operated here a lot, you know, meaning half a dozen times. But uh, it's really set up to uh, accommodate visitors. And so what will happen is either um, somebody will get in touch with me that I know and they'll say, you know, I've got a couple of friends coming up from so-and-so, you know, is it possible to get together an operating session? And if I'm not in the middle of something, yeah, we can do it. Uh, but I don't have a dedicated crew. It it might be one guy that's operated before and three people have never even been here before. Okay. Well, how often do you go down and just, I hate to use the term run a train, but there's for me, there's a certain sense of enjoyment of uh, having a contest go through. Yeah, I just enjoy watching the equipment run. Do you do that? Never. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I know people that do. Uh, Jim Vale lives over near Santa Cruz. And I think he's told me that, uh, at least as I recall, he runs a train every day. Uh, you know, he's working on his shop is next to his layout, and he'll work on the shop for a while, and then he'll run a train. Um, only trains I ever run are track cleaning trains. Uh, and during open houses, you know, I'll, I'll run a train. But... Um, uh, you know, just I get I get too impatient. It takes too long 
to run a train at scale speeds between two stations, and so I just don't do it. Okay. Is it DCC? Yeah. Yeah, it's DCC, radio-controlled uh, North Coast throttles, um, tsunami decoders in every engine. Um, Did you do sound? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, the uh, tsunamis with sound are in, in every engine. Um, okay, but since you never run it, it's, the railroad's kind of like a mime. You know, <laughs> It's capable of sound, but you never hear it. Well, uh, well that's tr- that's kind of true. Um you know, I, but you enjoy what you do and your approach to it. Uh, that's all that matters. Yeah, you know, I uh, I just like model building. Um, you know, maybe once the layout is completely done, although I don't know why that would change anything. Make, <laughs> I guess I'm trying to make it feel better. You know, once it's all done, maybe I'll go down, you know, maybe every hour and run it. No, that's not going to happen. So. <laughs> well, how about just, you know, breaking down one time and – Take a movie of it so you can post it on the web, or you've got quite an exhaustive uh, series of CDs on how to. Maybe you could just have uh, here's the you know the railroad in action. Well, actually, you know, there's quite a few videos on YouTube of it from people that have been here. Uh, oh, okay. Some of them were shot with phones, and so I really should reshoot my own one of these days. But that means I'd have to run a train, did not Yeah, I don't know. Well, you know what? You could probably put a listing on Craigslist and uh, ask for volunteer operators while you do the photography. <laughs> I don't think it that might work. I don't even think I would yeah. have to go to Craigslist. I don't think you'd have a lot of trouble with that at all. Can I be contradictory for a minute, Jack? You said you're too impatient to run a train, yet you've been working on this railroad for 30, 40 years, so you've got to have some patience. I guess you it's a different it's, kind. You know um, – People think that all the time, and I tell them, patience is listening to somebody that can't get to the point. You know, I'm a very, sure. very impatient person for results, um, but what happens is that kind of drives me to finish things, you know, get in and get it done and, you know, go on to the next project. Um, my wife is very, very patient. We're both fly fishermen, and when we go fly fishing, We'll start out standing next to each other, you know, maybe 20, 30 feet apart and uh, start casting. And I make three casts. And if I haven't got a fish, I move 20 feet downstream and I cast three more times. I cannot stand in the same spot and cast a hundred times. She will stand in the same spot for an hour casting over and over and over. That's patience. I don't have patience. So I guess it's just a different kind. Okay. Fair enough. Well, we did talk some operations on on the Model Railcast show, and, and from what I remember, it was you know like Jack said, he he had a few op sessions where other people are running his railroad, and um, but what I remember from that conversation, Jack, was that when you kind of explained the whole discovery of sound, and and how that played into bringing the railroad to life. Can you explain that again? Well, I don't recall saying that. You don't? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I will talk about opera. You mentioned, you know, a few times. Um, it's actually been operating more than that. Uh, the first operating session was about 10 years ago. Um, and we have a Bay Rails here in the Bay Area every two years, and it's coming up in a couple of weeks from now. And I'll be open for that. Uh, this time we're 
be running three sessions. Um, and it's actually a, it's a highly desirable slot because uh, Jim Diaz models the WP has a beautiful layout. He lives about three blocks from me. And so people that sign up and are lucky enough to get us will go to his place in the morning. He runs a sequential clock, uh, pretty low key, you know, trains go out and, and run around the layout and so forth. And uh, it takes four operators, which is as many as I can handle. And then we all go to lunch together. Then they come over here in the afternoon and run TTTO on my layout. Um, we're going to do that. We have one operating session slot for uh, the Saturday before the Sacramento convention. Uh, we'll give people a chance to, to operate here. You know, and we're looking basically for people that have never operated on either one of the layouts before. Um, we do have people in Bay Rails that'll come one year and then sign up and ask for it the next year. But um, what I try to do on operating sessions is immerse the operators into the time period and what they're doing. So they're running timetable and train order. Uh, I insist on running at slow speeds. Um, if you're really good, they will be blowing the whistle for grade crossings and all that kind of stuff. Um, it can be fairly intimidating because I run a very, very fast clock, um, or maybe a fast, fast clock. I run an eight to one clock. Um, the timetable was built on a 10 to one. But the reason I do that is it gives me times that are very realistic to the real uh, railroad. So you leave Merced at eight and you get to Merced Falls at 9.30 and that's about, you know, that's within 15 minutes of what the real timetable had. Um, but of course that only, that goes, but the problem with an eight to one fast clock is that if you want to leave on time, you have about a 15 second window to leave on time. And so that drives up the adrenaline. It was not intentional, but I, I see that happening. So I tell people, run slow, get your work done, and then you will sit. And that is what the prototype did. They did not, they weren't like us today where, you know, you're working at a, um, an office job and you're on the computer eight hours a day and things are so hectic. Um, they ran 14, 16 hour days, but they would run up to a siding and wait for the train to come the other direction. And then they would go to a water tank and spend five, 10 minutes taking water. Um, and so that's what I want people to do. And I, I, I shouldn't say insist. I suggest that unless you're standing, the person you're standing to next to is in an engine that is within a few feet of yours, you shouldn't be talking. You can't talk to somebody that's 40 feet or 40 miles away. So that kind of keeps the, the chatter down, keeps people kind of focused on what they're doing, thinking about what they're doing. Um, I say, you know, I don't mind if you talk, you know, but you can't talk about American Idol. You can't talk about the Super Bowl because this is 1939. You should be talking about what's happening in 1939, which uh, also kind of keeps the chatter down because people didn't pay attention in history. So um, I think it makes it, it's a fun operating session. As I said, it, it kind of be, can be intimidating to some people, but uh, every person that when they've gotten done has said, wow, that was, that was cool. Um, you know, the scenery is all done. It's, it's, you know where you're running, you know what time it is. Um, so it makes it pretty, pretty kind of neat. Well, you are the architect, and, uh, you know, it's about bringing 
that time period to life. And I think uh, your rules of engagement of operating <laughs> help do that. So. I, I like your word engagement. <laughs> like a war. Okay, this wraps up part one of our three-part podcast series with Jack Burgess. Uh, in part two, Ryan and I will be discussing the upcoming 2011 NMRA convention in Sacramento, California. Jack Burgess is a part of that planning group, and he's going to tell us just why it's called the Unconventional Convention. So for Ryan and myself, hope you've enjoyed this and look forward to you being here with us for another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Thank you.